It's easy to see how people buy into this. But I am convinced that it's all a lie. That everything comes down to chance. Life is empty, meaningless, and without hope. I simply cannot accept that the same man who lived 2,000 years ago is alive and knows my name and is personally interested in our lives, that God loves us, that there is hope for the human race. Because I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything I previously believed is a lie. Or at least that's what I thought before God opened my eyes to see that everything I previously believed is a lie. I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is hope for the human race because God loves us and is personally interested in our lives. That the same man who lived 2,000 years ago is alive and knows my name. I simply cannot accept that life is empty, meaningless, and without hope. That everything comes down to chance, that it's all a lie. It's easy to see how people buy into this. But I am convinced that Jesus was God in the flesh, perfect and sinless, opening blind eyes and healing the sick, that he suffered for our sins, that he really was the Son of God. Some will tell you that Jesus was just an ordinary person. Believe me, everything changed for me the moment I wholeheartedly accepted this man named Jesus. This man named Jesus was born in Bethlehem and he was raised in Nazareth. He was baptized by John, and he taught about a kingdom, God's kingdom, and how it would come to earth. The Bible emphasizes the Holy Spirit's empowerment on Jesus' ministry to bring this kingdom. The Spirit was there before before the birth, and it was relied upon for the birth of Jesus to really matter. It was a virgin birth through Mary. This man named Jesus, he suffered for our sins. He healed the sick, and he gives hope to mankind. This man named Jesus is also God. Typically, a birth gives you hope. When you have a child, you hope for her life to bring you joy to others. There's hope that her life will impact the world. There's hope that her life will not end too quickly. You know, I have a two-year-old who I anticipated coming into this world. It brought me joy, and it continues to bring me joy. 
Um, you know, I have hope that I'll teach him things that will make his life better and that will ultimately make this world just a little bit better. But um, I know that I can only teach him and raise him. I'm not going to be able to live my life through him. Um, he has to make his own choices alone. And the choices he makes will impact others for better or for worse. You know, we can't deny that there's some people in this world who make bigger impacts socially on the world. There are arguments that, you know, people can make, you know, that people are really impacting the world even though other people don't see it. And that's, that's true. You know, I'm, you know there's those people impacting the world and, and we don't necessarily know it. Maybe some of those prayer warriors or, um, you know, those subtle relationships. But um, when we see those people who impact the world, um, you know, they're, they're rightly admired for their sacrifice to humanity. You know, not all of these people are believers either. Um, yet the causes they stood for, for were admirable and um, their impact was measurable. You know, some of these people might be Martin Luther King Jr., um, Winston Churchill, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, or Nelson Mandela. Sometimes we don't really know the significance of someone's birth until we can look ahead and see the life they lived. We know the story of Jesus and the life he lived, and his birth is truly something to celebrate. Quickly, though, I want to look at a man who followed Jesus. He impacted the world in a way that is still impacting theological thought around the world, and he's challenging the way the church reacts to injustice. Born in Poland in 1906, this man was one of eight children, and he happened to be a twin. He lived a relatively uneventful life and and pursued being a pastor, a theologian, and a teacher. He lived a... um, By the time he was 21... He, uh, he, already, he had his Doctor of Theology degree, and not only did he complete that degree, he had the highest honors. A few years later, at the age of 24, he went to New York City to continue his studies, where he was met by some of the social injustices found within the United States. You know, and, and this had a, a significant impact on his faith and what it actually meant to be a disciple of Jesus. He began to realize the views of people who were oppressed, those people who were thought of less than human, Um, you know, maybe because of their skin color, they didn't have the same access to jobs or education, they were oppressed people, and and he started to try to see the world through their view, and he was distraught by the church's inability to act or react and interact with those who needed justice. Justice. A year later, in 1931, he moved to to Germany and taught at the University of Berlin. He was dedicated to actually carrying out the teachings of Jesus, not just, uh, you know, thinking about it or, or, you know, teaching. Um, Two years later, after he began his appointment at the University of Berlin, the Nazis ascended to power. And Hitler, he became the chancellor. Two days after Hitler became appointed chancellor, um, this man released a radio statement warning Germany of the political misleadings Hitler may have had and you know, seeing him as a great deceiver. 
several of the churches in Germany began to be led by Nazis, which um, you know this man he radically opposed, especially when the, nat- the natural church or the national church was at, um, um, <clears throat> the national church was trying to remove any church officials with Jewish descent, and they were actually there was actually a movement trying to remove the Old Testament from the Bible because of its roots in Judaism. This man opposed these de- direct assaults on the church and taught at an underground seminary, emphasizing the sacrifices that were necessary to be a disciple of Jesus and to, pre- and to preserve its purity. In 1938, during World War II, this man became a spy for the opposition against Germany. This man opposed the Nazis, and those Nazis, they became aware of it. They forbid him to print or publish or to speak in public. And during this time, however, he extensively wrote about Christian ethics and discipleship. He helped Jews escape Germany until he was arrested in 1943, and he was imprisoned for a year after he went on trial. While he was in prison, he continued writing letters to encourage others to resist the Nazi agenda. Then in 1945, he was brought to a concentration camp Stripped of his clothing, as he awaited his, and as he awaited his death, he prayed. This man was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many see him as a modern martyr, a disciple who obeyed his calling to the point of death. He's a man who sacrificed his comfort to follow Jesus. I would argue that he could only accomplish this through the power of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. And it required him to say no to his will over the will of God. Bonhoeffer was a man, and we can look at his birth, and we can admire the life that he lived. And like Bonhoeffer, Jesus was also a man. Jesus performed miracles. He changed water into wine. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He calmed the storm. He healed the sick. And Jesus also broke down cultural boundaries. In John 4, Jesus met this Samaritan woman at the well. These Samaritans, they were disliked by the Jews, but he met with the Samaritan woman anyway to explain everything about coming to God's kingdom. He exposed himself as the Messiah. His disciples saw this happen and asked, you know, why are you talking to this Samaritan woman? And Jesus responded by explaining that the fields were ripe for harvest. Jesus extended himself cross-culturally. He met with people who were different than himself. And as a result, it brought many of those Samaritans to see Jesus as the Savior of the world. Jesus also taught us to challenge the authorities that are already established in the world if they are not in alignment with God's justice. In Matthew 21, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he finds that the, that the temple is being used as a marketplace. He goes in and he turns the tables over, challenging the use of this holy space. Jesus then finds himself teaching in, around Jerusalem and um, you know, while he's doing that, the chief priests and elders of the, of the entire people of Israel, 
they come to him and they say, you know, they ask him to stop. Under what authority are you doing all these teachings? They did not believe that he had the authority to teach in this way. But it didn't stop him from saying, no, I'm going to just stop doing this because you said so. You're the established authority. If he would have stopped doing that, he would have said no to the will of the Father. And Jesus came to fulfill the will of God. Like Bonhoeffer, no established authority would prevent him from fulfilling his calling. You know, Jesus also taught us good theology. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 12, Jesus told the teachers of the law that although there are several commandments, the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And once you do this, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments are the greatest of all. Jesus realigned the world to who God is. It's not about a bunch of rules or being perfect. It's about God. Our life is about God, and we're to love him through our worship, through our actions, the way we display our love to the people in the world, especially to the people who are different, the people who are harder to love, the people who we have to adjust ourselves to understand. But remember, Jesus is a man. He struggled like we do. In the Garden of Gethsemane, outside of Jerusalem, before Jesus was crucified, Jesus prayed to God saying, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He literally asked God to save his life. Take this cup from me. And then right before Jesus died, he felt betrayed. His life resulted in a crucifixion. Not only was the end result death, it was death by humiliation. Death on a cross was for the thieves and the murderers. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In your humanity, you may have asked God the same thing. Why have you forsaken me? Why did you betray me? Why am I in this situation? Jesus had a full human body and mind. Mind. (laughs) He did not have unlimited strength. He also did not have perfect knowledge as a man. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and verse 32, I think it'll pop up here. But just as Jesus was describing the signs of the end times, he said, About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, if Jesus had perfect knowledge, he would have known the time, you know, unless we want to assume that he lied to us. You know, but Jesus not having pers- uh, perfect knowledge is also made evident in his constant prayer life. He was dependent on God leading his life, displaying an example for us. Our lives are to be dependent on God. We need to pray and we need to hear God's voice. A big difference between Jesus' humanity and ours 
is that he was without sin. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Now this might seem odd to some of you. You may have thought that Jesus had perfect knowledge or that he had a hidden strength and he just restrained it. You, you like to think if Jesus wanted to, he could have torn himself down off of that cross. But I want to point out two heresies or beliefs in the early, that the early church had to deal with. The first one is docetism. This is a flat-out denial of Jesus' humanity. I mean, they basically believe that Jesus only appeared to be human. Um, basically, they saw the world as evil, and, and there was no way that God could actually be here. Um, so they just had no perception of God taking fleshly form. But the second heresy is Apollinarianism. Um, and I still think this creeps into our churches today. This was the belief that Jesus was genuinely human, but he did not take on all of human nature. His body was physical, but his soul was divine. The thought here is that the reason Jesus was without sin was because he has, had a divine soul, different than ours. His godliness is what allowed him to be perfect. But the reason this is untrue is because God was fully human in every way. And this has been confirmed for centuries. You know, Jesus was fully man. It, I mean, our, our faith rests on this. The question then is this. Is a person who does not truly sin, or I'm sorry, let me say this well, is a person who does not sin truly human? Jesus was without sin, but he was fully human. If we answer this question with a no, we're saying that sin is part of the essence of human nature. Accepting this is to accept that God created sin because he created us. But when we go back to the original garden, the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, chapter 225, it says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were without sin because, because it is sin that brings us shame. Fast forward to chapter 3 in Genesis, and Adam and Eve are hiding after the fall. Sin has entered the world. The original creation was without sin. We were without shame. The creation was good. You see, to be fully human is to be without sin. Jesus was actually more human than us. Jesus came into this world without the effects of sin. He did not have anything separating him from God. But we do have sin, and it does separate us from God. However, the birth of Jesus gives us salvation to remove this separation. Seeing Jesus as a man is absolutely crucial to our faith. 
We celebrate Christmas because of the humanity Jesus shares with us. He truly can empathize with our struggles and our physical weaknesses. He shows us how to be more human, human, knowing that Jesus was in, was, knowing that Jesus was man is the key to the advancement of his kingdom on earth. Before I unpack that, though, we have to remember, though it should be assumed, Jesus is also God. There are heresies that deny his divinity, seeing Jesus as a historical figure who was wise and knowledgeable, creating a movement among men. But without the divinity of Jesus, our faith is meaningless. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story from the beginning of creation and its, and its fall. God saves his people, and ever since Adam and Eve ate from the tree, the world has desired a savior, which only God could be. Only God can save his people. In Israel, Isaiah, he said that their savior would come. In, in, uh, in his uh, book, he said in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We also know Jesus was God because of his resurrection, his forgiveness of sins, which only God can do. And he never denied being God when people called him God. You know, he had the opportunity to correct people. Jesus' purpose was to bring God's kingdom to earth. And Jesus unleashed the kingdom because he had no sin to separate him from the Father, but he was completely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, a few moments ago I said that knowing Jesus was a man is the key to the advancement of his kingdom on earth. When Jesus calls us to follow him, it's to receive salvation. But like Bonhoeffer in Germany, it also means following him to truly love our neighbors. Jesus came to display hope for this world. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus is that hope. And through his humanity, he was able to bring the kingdom here. And we have hope to see this kingdom on earth through the church. So how does this impact our life? To see the kingdom of heaven, it requires us to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, and to pray continually. Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit throughout his ministry, and his prayer is what kept him in tune with the will of God. It requires us to look at our lives and see how we can impact our surroundings. We remember the birth of Jesus because of the life he lived. He lived as both fully man and fully God. In our lives, we've all experienced a real physical birth. And when we come into the faith, we experience baptism and a life with spirituality. You know, this might include going to church, praying, worshiping, or serving. But like Jesus, we're going to find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll find that God is asking us to do something we are uncomfortable with, uncomfortable with and will be forced 
to decide, will God's will be done or will my will be done? And more often than I think we all like to admit, we say, my will be done. Never assume God will not ask you to do tough, unfavorable things. He may ask you to engage with the Samaritans or to challenge the authorities in your circumstances. He may ask you to pray and see healing. Bonhoeffer in Germany, he was given a task no one would choose. I think most of us would desire to live a long, healthy life and to remain out of harm's way. But is this our will or is this God's will? The beautiful thing is that each and every one of us are different. Our circumstances are different, so none of us should assume that all of our callings are the same. God's not going to call all of us to do what Bonhoeffer did. None of us have the calling of Jesus. The birth of Jesus resulted in the in this gift, our salvation. We work this salvation out in our lives as we follow Jesus and as we depend on the Holy Spirit and as we pray to God the Father. I want to share a couple testimonies because you know everyone's in a different place. We experience God differently based on our circumstances. But some things are true across the board. God loves us He loves each and every one of us. And our circumstances cause us to react to this differently. But let's watch Zach's story real quick. Hi, my name is Zach Smith, and I am 33 years old. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Mandy, for 11 years. We have three children, Lizzie, Jake, and Luke. And this is my story. I met Jesus when I was five years old. I grew up as the son of missionary parents in Ecuador, where I lived for 15 years. I went to college in Arizona, where I met my wife. For the next 10 years, we traveled around while I worked in the information technology field. We served in our local church, and I attended seminary. I often thought about working in full-time ministry, but no opportunities seemed right. I was told about a job here at New Spring Church helping with information technology. It was perfect, an IT job at an amazing church. I took the job and started working in October of 2008. For several months, life was very good, and we were very happy. In May of 2009, at age 32, I was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. Immediately, I had surgery to remove a foot and a half of my large intestine and a lemon-sized tumor. I was told that cancer had spread to my spleen and to my liver. Chemotherapy was on the horizon. This was all a very sudden shock to me. I had always been very healthy, and I found myself very confused. Why did I have cancer? Had I done something wrong to cause it? Was this a result of many years of sinful living in my past? I was working at a church and serving God. Where did I go wrong? But thankfully, the confusion quickly turned to hope. I knew that God had a plan for my life. I did not understand why I had cancer, but I knew that God was in charge. For three months, I underwent a horrible chemo regimen. Afterwards, I had a scan done, and the results were great. 
There was no cancer found in my body. We celebrated God's healing and God's faithfulness. And the next few weeks of my life were some of the best as I celebrated being cancer-free. But another scan one month later showed that the cancer had reappeared, this time in my abdominal cavity. I was devastated. Why was it back? Everything was just starting to make sense, but the reoccurrence of cancer caused even greater confusion. I resumed chemotherapy and did more tests. The cancer is now growing and getting worse. Unfortunately, the chemo drugs are no longer effective in my abdomen, and surgery is not an option due to the degraded state of my liver. Medically speaking, there is nothing more for me, and medically speaking, I probably will not live to 2011. The Bible says in Matthew 7:11 that God gives good things to those who ask. God cannot give me a bad gift. And it is through that lens that I can say that cancer is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I am a better husband and a better dad, a better boss and a better employee, a better friend and a better follower of Jesus. And through cancer, God has shown me some amazing things about himself. Those are indeed great gifts. I still have questions about cancer why it went away, and why it came back. I do not understand, but I know that God is in charge. I am praying for God to heal me. That is my desire. I want to walk my daughter Lizzie down the aisle. I want to watch my sons, Jake and Luke, become men. I want to grow old with Mandy, and I want to live my life with my friends here at work. But I may not be able to work for very much longer, and I may have just celebrated my last Christmas with my family. This I do know. If God chooses to heal me, then God is God and God is good. If God chooses not to heal me and allows me to die, God is still God and God is still good. To God be the glory. So this video was uh, about seven. Is about seven years old. And, and Zach did end up dying in, in 2010. Um, but he recognized God as God despite his circumstances. And he saw his cancer as a gift that made him a better person. Now let's look at Isaac's story. He chose to live a life for himself. You know, he was going to live hard or die trying until Jesus got a hold of him. You know, dreams can, uh, dreams can become reality in a city. Nobody that's telling you what you can and what you can't do, and there's an endless amount of opportunity. I soon got a job in fashion. It was amazing, the energy and the vibe in the shops. Knowing fashion and wearing the latest new gear or whatever made me feel like a 
like a million bucks. <laughs> I had the girls, I had the, the parties, I had the friends. And like with everything else, like working in fashion, you, you wear a pair of jeans for like a week or something like that. It's all consumables and I was in this fast-paced lifestyle that was kind of <laughs> eating everything that I got close to. Whenever I was on my own, everything would kind of stop and everything would hit me. I didn't know what I did the weekend, if I'd done something stupid or what I'd done to people. So I got more and more scared of, of being alone or standing still. I would usually just try to watch TV or something to, to keep that momentum going, putting headphones in my ear, having it so loud that I couldn't hear my thoughts or something. Max out my credit card with Hattie even harder, try to be even funnier, do even more stupid stuff with girls that would consume even more. And I'd racked up some, some debt because of this, like an open gaping hole inside of my heart that was just like really like tense and I didn't care about anything anymore because I was hurting so badly. This one day, I, all of this met me at the same time. And then I found myself in the train station. Every relationship and every everything was fully, fully, fully maxed out. There was nothing left. And the thought cropped into my mind. I was like, I don't think anybody actually will care if I would jump now. Walked over to where the trains were and. Uh, I was contemplating and getting ready to finish it all and end it. And in that moment, I felt my phone vibrating. And I saw it was my mum. Every single time that something was wrong, she would always ring at the perfect time. And uh, two hours later, I was on on a plane to England. When I, uh, when I came back to my parents, I knew what to expect. My mom and dad had a faith and they believed in God and they were gonna try to convince me of this thing. I thought, you know, I'll just go there, get some money together and then I'll go straight back to the city. One night, I couldn't fall asleep. I was just rolling around in my bed and in an instant, I felt God coming to come into my room. I know I know it's it's a bit of a strange thing to say, but I was so sure. I've never been so sure about anything in my life that uh, it was God that came into my room and asked, you know, come on boy, it's now or never like a strict dad would. I was still fighting that thing and I said, you know what, I don't care, mate, what you ever say. I'm not coming back. I don't want to do this. And uh, he asked me a question. He said, so what have you got? I said, you know what? If you can take this little thing that I've got, that's called Isaac's life, if you can make something out of it, because I can't, then uh, I'll give you everything. Because I don't know how, how this works. I can't do it anymore by myself. And it was in that moment that I felt that I was no longer alone, and he said, okay and I had hope to meet my problems.
meet the things that I'd messed up. And that makes me be able to wake up in the morning and fight another thing, fight things from my past that I could never look in the eye, look at fear that I was so afraid of. And the best thing about it is I've never, ever had this little. I moved out when I was 16, moved back in when I was 24. I have got no money, no nothing at all. Uh, I live with my family, with my little sisters and everything, and I have never, ever been this happy. He's like that perfect father that none of us ever had. He's right there with you and he will never let go of you. So does God ever, does God ever tell you it's now or never? Does he ask you, what have you got? So as we remember the birth of Jesus and the life he lived, we cannot forget that the first commandment is to love God. When we find him, it's about his kingdom, not our own. And as we pursue God in prayer, we'll find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane asking, why have you forsaken me? And we will choose his way or ours. But God is for us. For to us, a child is born. We've received the gift of hope, love, joy, and peace. God is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, we welcome you here. We're so thankful for, for humbling yourself to become man, man without sin. And God, we cherish this Holy Spirit that you have here for us that, that is empowering us. God, help us to, to tap into that, to know what it is you want us to do. And God, help us to follow your will not our own will. Help us to remember during this holiday time that you are the greatest gift. You've shown us that death is defeated. You've given us hope for the human race, for humanity. Yes, we're thankful for, for eternal salvation, but we know that your kingdom is coming now and through your church here on earth. Help us to listen and to depend on you and to go to you in prayer consistently. Thank you, God. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.